the two British officers whose dogs dogs got into a fight in Hyde Park and they then fought a duel, or the two men who argued over the interpretation of the translation of a Greek word and then had a duel. Hello and welcome to this week's pod as I continue my chat with historical fiction writers after Simon Turley last week and it's the best-selling Ben Kane. His book Napoleon's Spy is our book of the month and is a tale of duels set alongside Napoleon's march into Russia. In our chat we talk about those devotees of historical fiction who like to pick up authors on their mistakes and the matter of dueling in the period as you heard at the top there. Ben is the author of many bestsellers from the ancient world to medieval history. Coming up on the pod I've got History of the Mafia the Mau Mau uprising in colonial Kenya, and a discussion on the new drama depicting aerial bombing of Germany during World War II, and our film club for January is Conspiracy, starring Kenneth Branner and Stanley Tucci, which is a dramatisation of the January 1942 Vansay Conference, the meeting that decided the Holocaust. Please do share with the like-minded, but until then it's me talking with Ben Kane on rivet counters and duelists. Ben Kane, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on. That, that's great. Honestly, it's it's always fun talking about history. So thanks for inviting me. A pleasure. And you're best-selling author of many different parts of history. And so I really should have got you on earlier, actually. So that's my bad, really. But I, I'm particularly very interested in your sort of Macedonian set period series of novels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, but we're here to talk about a completely different era, the Napoleonic era, um, and actually it's very timely that we'll be talking about this because obviously there's the Ridley Scott movie, so we're going to talk a little bit about, we should talk about what Ridley Scott thinks about historians, that would be fun to... to oh, what does, oh you, I don't know this, what, what does he think? So Ridley Scott, so there's a few things Ridley Scott's been saying, and... It'd be interesting to get your view because obviously he's not writing history. He's not making a a, a, a documentary. He's making art. If you're writing, it's historical fiction, so you're you're not quite in the same um, vein. But you're also not writing history either. So it'd be interesting to get your view. But he has said a few things. So first of all, he said that people who complain about his film being historically historically inaccurate, I think to quote, need to get a life. But what he's also said that's caused, um, I think, a few rumblings amongst historians. It's got some of their backs up. He's uh, he's uh, he's he said to historians who don't like the film for its inaccuracies, were they there? Then how do they know? And then I think the other quote he had given was that um, probably the first two history books written on Napoleon are the right ones, and then the rest, you know, um, almost making things up. Slightly paraphrasing that last. Right, okay. Um, I get what he's saying about um, people need to get a life, because I don't know if you're aware of the phrase rivet counters. So for any of your listeners who don't know, rivet counters are the World War II enthusiasts who know how many rivets there were in the Spitfire in January, February, March, April, May of every month of World War II. And if you write 
a novel and you've got the wrong number of rivets in your Spitfire wing, they will email you in a very angry way. And they exist to do with every period of history. And, you know, let's, let's be frank, the number of rivets in the wing of a Spitfire is completely irrelevant unless you're writing uh, an engineering textbook and it stops it from flying properly. So facts shouldn't get in the way of a good story. But uh, I I try very hard. I believe it's very important to try and get the history as correctly as we can while being acutely aware that we can't always get it right. We can only do the best to, uh, you know, to the best of our ability using the texts and the archaeology that's available to us. But with something like Napoleon, because uh, literacy was very widespread by the early 19th century, there are an extraordinary mench, um, number of texts that survive from the time we were just discussing it off air, more than 150 first-hand accounts of Napoleon's invasion of Russia, 150 books. Uh, and that's a staggering amount of information. And to try and answer all Ridley Scott's points, how do you know, were you there? I don't know what he's talking about, but if he's if he's um, put stuff in his film that's plausible and isn't mentioned, I don't have any problem with that. I do that all the time. So I, I won't say Napoleon was in somewhere where he wasn't. If we know he was in a particular day date, he was in place X. I'm not going to say he what he was in a different place, but if he did something in place X that isn't mentioned, but also doesn't interfere with the facts of what we know, then that doesn't matter. So I wouldn't have a, a problem with that. But if he has people doing wildly anachronistic or totally out of uh, you know out of time frame reference modern things then i do disagree with that so i i i don't quite understand why filmmakers take such liberties with history um because the truth is actually frequently as interesting or more interesting i do accept a story has to sweep you along and and make you forget where you are but in my mind i can do that in my books and still maintain accuracy but I'm not going to get into a social media fight with Ridley Scott. It's uh, no point. <laughs> well, I completely agree with you on on. I mean, I I find it difficult to um, get annoyed because I I've actually been to see the film just over a week ago. I went to an early screening. Oh, lucky you! Yeah. Um, and well, I really enjoyed it. It is a. There are so many inaccuracies. Is probably too too. We wouldn't have time to go through them all, uh, but I don't think it necessarily detracts from the film. I don't think, no. I don't think he's. Okay, for a start, it's a two and a half hour film on the life of Napoleon. I mean, you know, there's a six hour, uh, uh, it's a five hour, I think, Abel Gantz film. Abel Gantz, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which my parents which, went to London, specially from Ireland, in nineteen eighty or eighty one to see that film. Really? Yeah, with the posters still on the wall of their kitchen. Wow, <laughs> it's funny. I'm I'm actually going to be going to see it at the end of this month, and I've never seen it. Oh wow, where is it yeah. showing? At the IMAX BFI. Oh wow, I'll have to look that up. Waterloo. I've never seen it either. Well, I'm I'm going to be. I don't know if I'm going to be. I doubt I'll be sitting next to him, but I'll be. Should be going. A, a historian, Adam Zamoyski, who you may be familiar with. Oh my goodness, his book, eighteen twelve, is the reason I wrote the my my novel. So I read Eight. that. Couldn't believe it was all real because it reads like a thriller. And I've what I've tried to see him at two literary festivals, missed one, and then Chalk Valley last year was there, and he had COVID, so he couldn't do his talk. So um, 
because I wanted to shake his hand and say, you know, thank you very much. Your textbook is amazing. Well, uh, this feels weird to say on a uh, a podcast, but I've, I've, I'm looking for a plus one for my uh, to come with me because I keep on <laughs> saying to people, "Do you want to come and watch a five-hour silent film uh, on the pony?" <laughs> I'll have to t- talk with you all when we finished about the date. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. He'll be Zamoyski. will be there. You see. So, well, I mean, we, uh, Zamoyski's books is fantastic, but the um. Yeah, the the uh, uh, the film itself, the Ridley Scott film, is hugely entertaining and historically a bit of a car crash. But yeah. I think if you're a historian whose life is writing about Napoleon, I, I should imagine you are going to probably take it a little bit harder than someone like me who have read a number of books on the period. But I also understand that you know this is this is Ridley Scott making. A blockbuster and he's very good at that yeah so gladiator is is a really big reason why i started to write about the romans i mean i, I loved asterix i i loved ancient history when i was a child and um in the early 2000s i was getting increasingly browned off with being a vet a, vet, a veterinary surgeon and i decided i'd write a best-selling novel uh, i mean i can laugh now but i did literally think to myself that's what i'd do and I went and saw Gladiator and then Roman uh, historical fiction started becoming quite popular with Con Eagledon and Simon Scarrow. And, and so I, I, you know, that's that's the way I went. But I adored that film. I went to see it twice in the cinema and I've watched it multiple times since. And when I watch it now, I mean, I, I, I actually have stopped. I've gone beyond the stage of screaming at the screen about the inaccuracies. But back then, 20 years ago or 22 years ago, whenever it was, I didn't know the inaccuracies. And it, it's a magnificent film, Gladiator. And the soundtrack, Zimmer's soundtrack, it is, it's phenomenally good, even with the inaccuracies. So, you know, I'm willing to cut Ridley quite a lot of slack because it, that film had direct impact on me setting my feet down the path I've been on, you know, for the last 15 years. So good films don't always have to be accurate. It's true. I would prefer it if they did, but I'm not going to, you know, cut my nose off and sp- to spite my face and not go and see it. You know, I, I can't wait to see it. Well, that's the thing. If you, if you, if you make a, a film that attracts a lot of people to the cinema and then you know the, the it opens up a world of of um i guess napoleonica they can start reading napoleon spy or the zamoyski book it'll attract people to the whole period just like gladiator did with H&M. yeah yeah you'd hope so wouldn't you um that's the eternal hope of of people you know you'd wish it was done accurately but anyway yeah, yeah. yeah, you have other other things like rome total war uh which is a very popular game and um that is actually quite accurate in a lot of regards, but it also has Roman war dogs. So, you know, I get emails about the Roman war dogs. I'm just going, I'm sorry, there's no evidence for that whatsoever, but millions of people around the world think it's true. So for every person that comes to look up Napoleon or whatever, there's, you know, maybe 10 people that think, yeah, I don't know, some big inaccuracy, don't tell me, but they'll go home thinking that that's true. But I don't know, does it really matter? I, I don't Possibly. think so. No, probably not. Um, when you go even further back in history, the holes in our knowledge are so absolutely enormous. I sometimes describe to audiences how if you regard the history of the Roman Empire as a 1000 piece jigsaw, we've got maybe three corners and there are a few pieces where we've got 
a few areas where we've got a few, uh, sorry, very few pieces missing. So for example, uh, a Pekis's cookbook, we know all those recipes and then there's Plutarch's histories and we know all this bit over here. A lot of it's irrelevant because what they thought, what they believed about history and animals was all wrong anyway. But then there are the whole aspects of society and how, what was marriage like and um, women who weren't allowed to vote or whatever, but we still know they played a big role in society. We know nothing about that. There are all these huge gaping holes and... I would posit that a really good historian fills those gaps with common sense, but it's still made up. You know, a lot of Roman textbooks, nonfiction works could be really thin if they if they just had what we know, but they're not. And so they're making it up. And what's the difference between that and really good historical fiction? Not yes. a great deal, in my opinion. Well, you're gonna have to be careful there, Ben. You'll um, you'll attract the ire of historians. Well, some historians, I mean, a lot of historians are really on board with it, but there, there is you do sometimes get the inference that people who write historical fiction are kind of writing nonsense. But the vast majority of novelists I know take an extraordinary amount of uh, make an extraordinary amount of effort to try and be as authentic as possible. So, and I, I do to my very, and I, I for now for about. I don't know, it's eight or ten books. I'll always have at least one or two academics in the field that the book is about. Read it before it goes to print. That's um, interesting. Yeah. So I, I don't know if other people do that, but I, I've been doing it now for about eight or, eight or ten years. So, And I wish I'd done it before that. <laughs> yeah. So did you do that with Napoleon Spy? Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. So Zach White, who has a really popular podcast on Napoleon, uh, he read it and uh, and he said, oh, mate, you know, I'll, I'm no expert on Russia. The guy's a PhD in Napoleonic history. And I said, right, that's but he he really liked it. But he referred me to a friend of his who's called Alexander Mika Beridze, if that's how you pronounce his name. He's Georgian. He lectures in America in a university. And oh, yes, he, he's written the new um, biography. Right. Of... Yeah. Of Kutuzov. Yeah. So his his sphere of excellence is the Russian campaign. And he read it and, to my incredible surprise, found no mistakes. Now, that's the first time that's ever happened, I quickly add. and But what was lovely, it was quite funny, his one criticism was because he, being the person he is, recognised all the individual anecdotes and um, little scenarios that I'd taken from direct men's histories. And he said no one man could have seen all the things that my hero did. And I went, oh, OK, Alex, I'm sorry, but I'm going to use all the best bits <laughs> and your average reader won't have a clue. And they're all true. So I did apologize to the dead Frenchman in, in my author's note. I said, I'm sorry for pulling you all into one man's history, but I I, I did it with respect. So because I did well, feel a bit bad. <laughs> well, you mentioned the author's note because there's an author's note right at the beginning where you you're That's kind right. of preempting the rivet counters and yep. first time i've ever done it yeah so be, this is so, funny i read that thinking this is this is just uh oh, i know you must get so many emails from people uh, from other novels so you've, you've you've been thinking right i'm gonna preempt these buggers and to be fair the the number of complaints that i get about inaccuracies has really dropped um so i took quite a few liberties in my first few books and i've become more exacting and but you'll you'll always get one or two and 
you know, what's funny is that often they're wrong and I'm right. So there was one I got a few years ago about um, I had wagons in the streets of Rome in the daytime. And I got this very self-righteous email telling me that, uh, you know, that Augustus had banned wagons. And I said, yeah, that's correct. And my novel set 30 years before that decree. <laughs> um, but um, did you get a reply? A no, no, oh. didn't get a reply. The best one of those that I've ever heard is not me, Stephen Saylor. I don't know if any of you, if you know him, he writes Gordianus the Seer. We interviewed him a few issues ago, I think. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, well, then he didn't tell you the story about the cherries, did he? No, it was a written Q&A. So I don't think I've got the opportunity. Long story short, he had um, a man comparing the color of his wife's nipples to cherries in one of his books. And three or four years after the book came out, he got an email from Germany. And I got this from Stephen Saylor's editor. So this is this is verb gospel. About three or four years later, it came out in Germany, got an email saying, did he not know that cherries weren't first described in Rome until 30 years after the novel was set? And just to set your set your just to explain to readers who may not be aware, the fact that not um, cherries were described in a in Roman text from 30 years later is just coincidence that someone described them then. It doesn't mean they didn't write down, oh, there are these things called cherries that have just come in. So anyway, the next book Stephen Saylor wrote, there's a short story at the back of it, which is free. And there are three or four characters in it and they, nothing happens. There's no murder. They're not talking about a body and how to find out who the killer is. They're just sitting around drinking wine. And the next thing, one of them comes, one of the people who's uh, in the friendship group comes running in holding this bunch of fruit saying look these are cherries they've just come in from asia minor and that's the end of the story <laughs> now the editor never said whether there was an email from germany or not but and we don't know if that person read it but it was just to make a point <laughs> i thought it was hilarious <laughs> that is great that is great well yeah. it but it's important that you you do write your initial note because i had no idea it's about i mean it's better if you you explain so what so just quick so quickly would you have thought it was odd if i had what the number of duels it's I about think I, prob I think i probably would have actually okay yeah. good okay so so um quickly to explain that the main character has four duels during the book with the same man and i thought to myself and you've just confirmed a lot of people might think that's well that's ridiculous we know about dueling but who's going to fight four duels and funnily enough, we were talking about Ridley Scott at the beginning. Ridley Scott's first film is called The Duelists with Harvey Keitel and another American actor's name escapes me. It's excellent. David Carradine, I think. That's it. David Carradine. It's got it's got fairly awful synthesizer music, but the film itself is brilliant. And it is based on a Joseph Conrad short story, which is based on the true uh, real life pair of Napoleonic officers um, who lived during Napole Napoleon's time and they uh, had close to 30 duels with each other over a 20-something year period. One of them was on the Russian campaign and they probably would have had a duel, but the other guy was in disgrace and was left in France. And so I refer readers as well to a brilliant textbook that just happened to come out uh, the year before I wrote the novel about dueling by a British author whose name escapes me. And um, you know, duels were essentially, think of 
did you look at me uh, when you're coming out of a pub and you've had too many pints or, you know, when you were a kid in school, do you look at me? Do you want to fight? I mean, that's what dueling was like. It was usually involving alcohol, often involved a per perceived slur or insult to do with a woman, but could be as ridiculous as the two British officers whose dogs, dogs got into a fight in Hyde Park and they then fought a duel, or the two men who argued over the interpretation of the translation of a Greek word and then had a duel. So it was literally, you know... I this... think that's my favourite example that you gave, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so um, when the when the alcohol fumes had gone and, and sobriety had returned, it's quite common for duels to be recorded as... Uh, the, the seconds got together, the men who were, you know, literally deputized to act on behalf of, the, of each participant would get together and agree it didn't have to happen. Or the two men would fire into the ground or fire in the air. And once you'd fired your pistol, not at the other person, then honor had been served and you could walk away without, you know, without looking like you'd climbed down. But often they did they did shoot each other and wound each other and, and kill each other. And uh, and so I just wanted to preempt the one star Amazon reviews by putting a really short author's note at the beginning. And my my editor thought it was quite funny. And so she said, yeah, that's that's fine. Do, do you know the rough? Um, I should have warned you about this question because it's quite an annoying question. But do, do you know the rough ca uh, death rate of a, a duel? Are you more likely? Is it sort of quite high risk of dying? It depended on the duel because sometimes it was only uh, it was generally um, you agreed the number of shots beforehand. And often it was just one shot, because obviously the more shots you take at each other, the more likely you are to hit each other. Because even though you were only 20 paces away, which was standard, you know, men's arms would have been shaking with fear uh, and they did stand side on to each other. So it wasn't it wasn't like they were facing each other um you know with shoulders parallel to each other and um then there was also did you fight to first blood i.e wounding with a sword so that if it was swords you could be just whipped across the face or something like that you know and that was honor served or was it to death and so uh the simple answer is then i actually don't know the answer but it would very much have depended on the severity of one shot two shot first blood or death but death was common and as you, as your listeners are probably aware, with musket balls uh, and pistol balls, the danger wasn't actually so much from the the um, bullet itself, unless it it went into your heart. Uh, it was the clothing it carried in with it, and and that caused massive infection afterwards. And so there was another hilarious example of a surgeon who was challenged to a duel, and because he knew the risk of clothing, um, he stripped naked before his opponent arrived and his opponent was so scandalized he refused to fight him unless he dressed and the surgeon refused to get dressed so the guy walked away which of course made me think is maybe the surgeon expected that to happen and got away without fighting a duel but it's still quite funny a naked man standing on some green in england with a pistol <laughs> pistols or um uh swords it wouldn't have been sort of Cannonets like in Blackadder, then? Uh, no. Um, so it was swords very, uh, very much until the end of the 1700s. And then 
pistols became more common and that equalized the field dramatically. So if you and I had an argument in a tavern and you were a renowned swordsman, I'd be very wary of challenging you to a duel because you'd chop me to pieces. But pistols, you know, anyone can point a pistol. It's like the crossbow versus the longbow. Anyone can point it and blow a hole in somebody. But there are, there were sometimes um, duels with knives. There were two Frenchmen who, for reasons beyond me, but this is all written down, um, they tied their left arms, left wrists to each other with a rather short piece of cloth. They each had a knife. They climbed into a horse-drawn carriage, which, as you'll know, is quite small. And the horse went round in a circle around a, a circular junction while they were stabbing at each other with the doors of the carriage closed. And then it stopped after five minutes and they both fell out, absolutely stabbed to pieces. And one guy lived and one guy died. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. There was even one in a, in a grave, two guys fighting a duel in, in a single grave pointing at each other. Oh, right. Yeah. What, to save time or? I don't know. I don't Weird. know. Just um, really crazy. Well, okay. So this is the uh, Napoleon spy set during the, um, obviously the, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned the, the march into Russia. Um, but what, what's your, is it Napoleon himself? Because I find Napoleon a very uh, a fascinating figure. What, 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 it was it Napoleon that attracted you to the era or? It wasn't, no. Um, so, again, I think it was all fair. We talked about Adam Zamoyski. Um, oh, no, you, you mentioned him, and sorry, but the Abel Gantz film. Adam Zamoyski. Listeners know, because he's been on and we've chatted about Oh, the, I'm going to have to look that up. So, yeah, a really wonderful textbook. In my other life, I work as a bike guide sometimes and uh, cycling huge distances like, you know, uh, Barcelona to Rome over the Alps, which is the Hannibal uh, and so on. And I give the historical talks and I was doing the Napoleon a couple of years ago, four years ago, and I read Zamoyski's book and it reads like a superbly written thriller, but it's all fact. And I, you know, that, that I literally um, had a meeting with my editor a few weeks later and I just showed her the book and I went, I want to write this. And I told her about some of the stories in it and she said, yeah, great. And so that's what I did. Uh, and it was just the extraordinary, the grandness and the grandiosity of the campaign. This crazy idea that he was going to take 500,000 men in, and to conquer Russia, even when he'd been told by his master of horse, Kolonkor, who had been the emissary at St. Petersburg for several years, told Napoleon he'll go to Siberia before he before he surrenders. And he didn't listen. And... And then that you know that the, what happened, it, you, you, it's almost unbelievable what happened. But you know all these men wrote it down, and so it was just screaming at me to write it down as a as a as a novel. I can't get over the number of nationalities because mm. before I, you th assume it's just sort of France v Russia, but it's a lot more than that. No, it? it was the whole the whole Napoleonic Empire. So Italians and Poles and Swiss and Dutch. And Croatians and Germans and um, there were Span. There was even a regiment of Spaniards there, and there were some Portuguese. I mean, you know, these poor Spanish guys used to nice warm weather, and it goes to minus thirty-five. <laughs> it was yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, yeah, it really was. So, what, what's your what do you think of Napoleon? What's your view on Napoleon then? Um, I would immediately bracket my opinion with my my area of research was very narrow. You know, I would love to have the time to go and write a whole series on, on the Napoleonic Wars, but Bernard Cornwell's already done that. And so 
my knowledge of him is from what I've read about this campaign. And and there is extra, obviously. I couldn't just confine it to that. But what came across to me to do with Russia is this massive ego. That he his ego was immense. To ignore the the advice of Kolonkor, who was literally repeating Tsar Alexander's words, and and yet despite his his ego and being un, unwilling to back down when you know various points when they were on the western bank of the river Neman, which is where they crossed into Russian territory, and then at um, various points in the advance and at the Battle of Borodino, and then getting to Moscow uh, and and staying there even though. Kolonkor was telling him the weather was going to change. It's evident that he just wouldn't listen. But he was, you know, he was an extraordinary leader. His men adored him. He could he could stop his carriage and get out and walk up to a group of soldiers and pick out one man and say, I remember you at such and such a battle and you won that award, didn't you? And the guy would go, We mon emperor. And you know, all his men, his comrades would cheer. And he could Kolonkor was at the end was so just he couldn't he he didn't want to be there anymore because he could see it was all going to hell in a handcart and he he um he asked Napoleon to send him to Spain so rather than be sent back to France which might sh- show he was a coward he said send me to Spain I will fight for you there and he spent a whole day going around telling all his subordinates what to do and preparing to leave and packing his bags and avoiding the messengers Napoleon was sending for him um, and trying to get away. And in the end, um, one of the messengers found him. He was ordered to the to the emperor's presence and Napoleon asked him what was wrong. And he told him and Napoleon just laughed at him and took him by the ear, which is what they he used to do to people. To, he'd grab their ear and sort of pull them slightly towards him. And when Colincourt said, you know, you won't take my advice and so on and so on, the emperor just laughed at him and rode away. And Colin Corr said, what could I do? I had to stay with him. So even even though he knew very much what was going to happen, even he couldn't couldn't bring himself to leave. So he had he must have had an extraordinary charisma. But my goodness, his ego, you know, he would have needed a doorway about four times wider than most of us to get through. Um, but maybe that maybe that's what made him a good leader as well. I don't know, because, you know, he didn't seem to care about the fact that the number of dead, you know, he he lost 90% casualties or more. So hundreds of thousands of men died. And he didn't seem to be too, um, show too much remorse about that. No. And then he left them, didn't he? And then he left. Well, he, he kind of had to, because there was a potential yeah. coup in Paris. He did stay till relatively late, but yeah, he did leave. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think actually uh, the film does, kind of it certainly tries to to convey that kind of um adoration that he uh, got from the troops so that's at least something something quite heartening um so so is this a standalone novel or are you going to be it was intended to be um very much intended to be but you know like every novelist you sort of become of the the act the history that goes on after you finish your novel and the british were probably people who who are into their history you know they know all about the peninsular campaign and waterloo but i'm not sure how many people know about the dramatic battles in germany that took place in 1813 so the russians kept coming and the germans all 
threw off the shackles and said, well, you're not our emperor anymore. And but Napoleon fought these rearguard battles without his cavalry that were all dead in Russia and with a lot of inexperienced men. And he still nearly won again and again and again. And then obviously you had him being deposed and sent to Elba uh, and so on and the Hundred Days and, and and Waterloo. And it yeah, I want to write another one <laughs> called The Road to Waterloo, but I'm not doing that immediately. I might do that in another couple of years, but it would just be one more book um, about this this protagonist, Matthew Carey, and, and the end at Waterloo, I think. Yeah, I've, that that whole period is, is, it is so fantastic. And you're absolutely right about the whole... Eight, uh, the, the the campaigns, the, these massive battles that the British, are, I think, are very unaware. Uh, Austerlitz, Wagram. Yeah. We know nothing about 100,000 men at Austerlitz. Three nations against Napoleon, and he beat them all. And he was, he was, in, he was an incredible general. Absolutely incredible. On Borodino, which was the big battle outside Moscow, you know, he was really ill that day. He had dysuria, which means he couldn't pee. And so he was in his tent for most of the day. And normally he'd be riding up and down the line, telling people to do this, that and the other, send in this unit, pull back that unit, put the cannons here. And he did almost none of that at Borodino. And they still came out on top, Not only just, but um, it was a real off day for him. Um, but the, the way that the way that they got out, um, it's incredible that any of them got out at all of Russia and I think that shows some of his leadership as well but also the leadership of his individual commanders like people like Marshal Ney stand out um he was a quite extraordinary man who who was left at the back at the in the rear guard near the end and still managed to to get to safety although most of the people that were with him died so I I think a- anyone reading about that period just loves Marshal Ney yeah um, I was really uh, yeah so Marshal Ney um he when Napoleon was deposed, he joined the army of the monarchy and then he was sent to, to arrest him when he escaped from Elba and it just joined forces with him again. So when Napoleon lost at Waterloo and Ney was captured, he was sentenced to be executed and he was offered a reprieve. And he said, no, I am a true Frenchman. And they shot him by firing squad. And he, yeah, I was really sad to read about that because for me, the, he was my favorite character of all the officers and people of leaders on the French side during that campaign. Ney was, there was even, um, I have a dog in the book because it got really grim. And so there was a, in Zamoyski's book, he, he recounts the story of this dog that had walked from Spain to France to Russia. And it was it was on the way out. It got frostbite in its paws. And so it's, his owner put it in his backpack. And we don't know what happened to it. But I, I put that dog in the book and the dog survived. Like in Hollywood, they say never kill the dog. And I called the dog Marshal Ney because he was in he was in the dramatic. He was part of the dramatic escape that Ney led. And I thought, you know, what do you call a dog? I looked up 19th century names for dogs and all this. I just thought, no, you're going to call him Ney, aren't you? Because everyone, the guy who was with him loved Ney as well, the owner. <laughs> Did you read about the, I'm sure you have, about the rumor that Ney survived and that he no. wasn't that he wasn't shot oh. by, well it's a <laughs> it's a rumor and actually i mentioned this because a listener emailed me this the other day um with a newspaper story in south carolina because i, I don't know if you've read any of bernard cornwall's novels set during the american civil war starbuck yeah yeah no, i haven't read any of them no. and he uh, nay there's a nay a, a, a nay um 
descendant in 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 the uh, in the novels, oh. and that's because there is a rumor that Ney was not shot by a firing squad. I think the Duke of Wellington had petitioned the royal family so that he wasn't shot, but uh, the rumor is that he escaped to America. But oh. yes, this listener sent me a newspaper story that uh, is confirmed the fact that that is simply rumor or conspiracy mm. theory. And he really These things didn't. usually are, aren't they? Of course. Yeah, it's 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 too romantic a, a story, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. There is um, a story from America, though, about this, the account. It's the only account written by a private soldier called Walter Jacob. And his account was found in a farm in Kansas in the 1930s and was first thought to be a hoax but has since been examined by countless historians and uh, and it is it is it is real and it had made its way over the atlantic you know and 120 years later was was found just literally i don't know by chance and what's lovely about it is that um he doesn't write dates and he doesn't write place names he literally didn't know where he was but he would write such and such a battle and my friend was killed and this guy was injured. And then there'd be an asterisk and it'll tell you this was this battle because we've corroborated it, cross-referencing with all the officers' accounts. But it just shows you that an ordinary soldier doesn't know where he is most of the time and doesn't care. He knows that he ate well that night and he got a pair of boots off a dead body, but he doesn't know what the battle was about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, life life as a soldier. I mean, well, actually, we're seeing it even now. Life, life as a soldier in Ukraine does not sound. If you're a Russian soldier in Ukraine, it's a miserable experience. Yeah, yeah, it's survival from moment to moment, and yeah, you don't really. You're just your buddies around you. That's what matters. Nothing else matters. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay, well, look, Ben. I know this has been a a. Uh, uh, you've got to dash, but thank you very yeah, much for you. for joining me for. Uh, for this and so it sounds like we might get another napoleonic novel but are you heading uh, back to the ancient past uh not yet well i am i am in a matter of um speak in a manner of speaking but my, the novel i finished that's coming out next may is vikings but in ireland because i'm irish for those of readers who, or listeners who really like accent now some people think i'm from somerset now <laughs> <laughs> Most people in Somerset don't think that, but um, yeah, so a Viking novel set in Ireland, and then I'm currently writing a point of view directly going from soldier to soldier book set during the one day of the Battle of Cannae, literally going from, you know, Roman to Carthaginian to Numidian to Libyan to Iberian to Roman to like that, backwards and forwards across the battlefield, like a radio drama. Um, and that's going to be an audio-only book, actually. Um, it's a first for Orion, my publishers, but I'm really excited to be doing that. And th and then that that's then I'm also um, I'm only doing that in the downtime this year and next year. It comes out in 2026. Starting in January, I'm I am writing another Roman book. Yeah, great so. stuff. Oh, that but the uh, Penne battle um, uh, story sounds fascinating. I'm yeah, I'm having gonna... great fun doing it actually because uh, it is in one of my novels, but it's only about say four chapters, whereas this is a whole book. So, yeah, great stuff. All right, Ben. Well, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much, and I hope your uh, your listeners enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Lots more great history to come, but until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>